Amen, huh? Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians. We'll start our new endeavor today. Finished off 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, and now we're going to continue through our trek through the New Testament. So uh, just by way of reminder, uh, a lot of the, obviously the similar context is uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, it is written to Corinth, which is there in Achaia, which if you're interested, it's kind of the most northern point of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Corinth, uh, historically, um, went through different changes, but in the first century, second century, it was uh, kind of a, uh, what you might call today a meme, in the sense that uh, Corinthians in uh, theater and literature uh, were always drunk. That's how you knew that they were a Corinthian on the stage, they'd be drunk. Um, They were, uh, it was an insult, uh, a cultural insult, like if, if your buddy was uh, you know, well liquored or was just, you know, obviously the ancient world uh, was significantly more sexual than our world due to idol worship and how that went about and so forth and temple prostitution and whatnot. And uh, it was alive and well. It was kind of, an, it was kind of like the, uh, if, if Las Vegas were on steroids, uh, that would kind of be uh, Corinth. Um, and so it was, it was a cultural insult. If somebody was super drunk or just always carousing, you'd be like, dude, that dude's a, Cor- he's a Corinthian. Like that guy's off the chart. That would kind of be uh, a normal thing to say about someone. So this is where Paul is writing to. Remember, Paul began that church. He stayed there for about 18 months. Here's a little bit of, of history and uh, hopefully to help with context of what's happening here. So we have two letters, right? We have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians. Uh, most scholars, many scholars, based on some things that are mentioned in uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, believe there's probably four letters. There's probably actually four letters that went to Corinth, to Corinth uh, but we got two of them in the canon. The canon, you can, I'm sure, uh, research that on your own. I'm sure biblical canon into Google would net you a pretty decent search. But the biblical canon isn't assembled for about 300 years after this letter is written, right? So the Bible as we know it isn't until about uh, 350 AD, right around there. Well, that to be said is, there's also about four or five times that Paul went to Corinth. Uh, There's the first time he went there, and he's there for a year and a half. Uh, Then you have another visit, and then you have a, a, a third visit where he stayed for about two and a half years and then you have in chapter 2, verse 1 of this letter, where he mentions some sort of painful visit. And he said, I had a painful visit, and I did not want to do that again, so I did not visit you again, but I do want to come and visit again later. So why does that matter? I think it helps us to understand there was a lot of communication. There was a lot of investment. Uh, in Corinth, you had people that were very, if you will, pro-Paul. They uh, received his teaching as being from the Lord. They Remember, they don't have the Bible right? <laughs> they don't have the Bible yet. All they have is essentially the Torah and, and people that are starting to write letters. But it's, it's widely agreed that the Gospels aren't finished until about uh, 95 AD. And so at around 100 AD to, and then so on, there was a copy, uh, an Aramaic copy of the four Gospels, uh, and that was what was widely circulated to churches. And then you had these letters uh, that were also circulated to churches. So I think it helps us to understand that as a first, the first century, second century, third century, fourth century church, that they didn't have this, right? This doesn't come along in the form that we have it. Well, it's established in about 350 AD, 
And, but the Bible in every hand, the Bible in every house, that doesn't happen until about the 1850s, right? Because in the 1435, that's where you have the Gutenberg Press is, in, is invented. So everything before that is handwritten. So all that to say is there was, it was essentially the way it worked in the, in the New Testament in the beginning is you had certain individuals that were approved, if you will, as apostles, the, the big 12, right? And so Paul is one of those guys, and, and you can kind of have an interesting debate if you want. Or is it Matthias when they cast bones, you know, and, or cast lots there in the beginning? Uh, that's kind of weird, right? The early church is like, hey, we need a new apostle. Let's roll some dice to see who it is. But that's what they did. And uh, the, the lot fell on Matthias. And uh, so is it Matthias or is Paul? Is he the 12th apostle? I don't know. You tell me. But we'll find out someday, hopefully. All that to say is that they were, the people would come and teach at these different churches and it was regarded based on who they were and if they had letters of, of approval from the other apostles. So Paul is a disputed figure in Corinth. He started the church there. He invested years there. He wrote to them. But there are a certain group of people, typically what they were called as Judaizers, that took exception to what Jesus actually did at the cross, right? So uh, we would say, and, and Paul would say, the, the Pauline doctrine, that when Christ was crucified for sin, right, when he died, the Bible says that our sin was nailed to his cross, right? It says that he bore our sin and, it was, and, and he was nailed to the cross. It says that he took the ordinances that were written against us, this kind of, uh, whether it's metaphorical or somehow spiritual listing of sin, was taken and it was nailed to the cross. So the idea is that our forgiveness and our righteousness, our right standing with God, if we've trusted in him, is purely through Jesus, right? Then he rose again from the dead, and he displayed his power. He had power over death. It couldn't hold him down. So he has power over death. He has power over sin. And now he has power to give to us through his spirit to live our lives, right? Well, the Judaizer would say, yeah, 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 that's kind of true. But you really need to be keeping the dietary laws. And you should keep the Sabbath. And you should be circumcised. Those are kind of the big three that they were, they were big on. Even though there's 613 Levitical tenets, they kind of stuck to those three. And they said, Jesus is essentially a good start. Like, yes, Jesus is legit, but really, God wouldn't have written that law for nothing, so we still need to follow the law for righteousness' sake. And Paul vehemently opposed that. In fact, if you recall or if you're familiar, remember in the book of Acts, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and James, who seems to be kind of the pastor there in Jerusalem, he says to Paul, you got to be careful here in Jerusalem because people are saying that you're saying not to follow the law of Moses. Well, that's exactly what he was saying, right? That's what he says in Romans. That's what he says in Corinth. And so he gets to Jerusalem, and they say, hey, we need you to kind of, you know, settle down the folks a little bit. So why don't you take uh, your boy here and go get him a haircut, get his head shaved, so that he can have a moment in the temple and essentially do a, uh, a pledge to God. So Paul agrees to that, and he pays out of his own money to have their head shaved and his own shade and whatnot. And then the people that see that go, wait a minute, this dude brought a Greek into the temple and they riot, right? And they disagree with what he said. So all I have to say is, you kind of have this big picture where Christianity is split. People are trying to figure out what they believe. They're listening to different folks. And that's what's happening in Corinth. That in Corinth, essentially, you have people that are on, uh, of Paul, as it were, that, that believe the Pauline doctrine. And you have people that reject it. So when Paul writes back in this, the second letter, which is most likely the fourth letter, and some of that is conjecture, so feel free to throw that in the trash. It's based on historical and some things that are written in 2 Corinthians. But when they get this letter, 
They are, I should say, that they're opposed to, to what he has to say. So Paul is going to address in this letter why and how he feels about Corinth. He's going to talk to them about his apostolic authority, which is kind of a scary thing for us, especially in our culture, right? Like, this is the Wild West. Who has authority over me? I'm, I have, we have the Bill of Rights, which I'm very thankful for. I'm not making any statements about that. But I'm saying in general, in our culture, we look at it as an individual freedom as the kind of supreme value of humanity, right? And, and we protect that with the right to bear arms and the rights for the free speech and stuff like that. So when, when Paul here is, is essentially trying to communicate to them, he's trying to tell them that he cares about them and that he's laid down his life for them and that, that they can trust him. And he hasn't insisted on his own freedom, insisted on his own things, but that he has, in a, in a sense, he continually calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. So when, when we you go, wow, it was really big, that was a lot of stuff. It's just so that with that lens... That's how we read this. We don't, we don't read this in 2023 America. We're reading it now, but we look at it. He's writing to the Corinthians to address specific problems. Now, don't go, oh, you're going to say we don't have to listen to it. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that at all. We're not trying to get rid of application. We're not trying to say, oh, it doesn't apply to us. Quite the opposite. We're trying to figure out how exactly does this apply to us? Because our situations may be different than theirs, but the concepts and the truth of who God is and how he works, those are everlasting, right? Those things don't change. So we'll jump in here to 2 Corinthians, and uh, we'll see just how far we get. So he says there, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now there again, why is he calling himself an apostle? Because he is, he's stating to them, and a big part of this first portion is him reminding Corinthians that he cares about them. That he invested a ton into them. If you don't care about something, do you invest in it? Not typically, right? It's kind of like disciplining children. It's, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to discipline children. Because you can either continue sitting on the couch and pretend like everything's okay... Or at some point, you have to actually get up and put in effort. And if you don't care about your children, you don't put in effort, right? That's, that's kind of how raising children works. If you do care about your children, you have hard talks with them. You work through things with them. When they express their pretty vehement negative emotions, you consider them. And then you can you know, talk back to them. If you don't care about your children, what do you do? Shut up and leave me alone. You, don't want, you, know, you ever felt that way? I felt that way as a parent. And my kids are perfect. But, you know, it's... <laughs> we actually have great kids. I, I like them a lot. We'll keep them. But, you know, this... But, you know, you can come to a point where you're just like, I don't want to deal with this. What? Just shh. Go to your room. Get on the iPad for, like, five hours. But don't tell anybody I said that. Right? So it's... <laughs> like, that's... When you care, you invest. You stop what you're doing. And you do it. And so, Paul, one of the points he's making here... Is he saying, I'm investing, I've been called by God, I've been commissioned. That's what an apostle is. Someone who's commissioned by another, essentially with like a mission or or a plan. And he says, I'm an apostle of Christ. And he's going to want to say, I invested in you. And the point is, I love you. In the whole rest of the book, he's going to say, these people that are troubling you with their weird doctrine, they don't love you. They're trying to draw away people to themselves. And we've probably seen Bible teachers like that. We've probably seen people that, or we've experienced it, or we've done it, where we, it's not so much that we care about the person as much as we want recognition, or or we see people that they want recognition, or something to that effect. 
Paul's saying that's not what we're about. It's never how we operated. He's telling them, we have already, I'm an apostle, Paul would say. I am not, but Paul would say, I'm an apostle, and I've been commissioned by God for you. That's why I'm here. So he says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now he, who's it to? The church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. So Achaia is kind of the county of the area, and, and Corinth is, is, is essentially the, uh, the capital of that area. That's what it is. So he's saying, everyone. This letter is not just for the people just at Corinth. It's for everyone. And now we have it here, right? So it, it went to Corinth. It got circulated around Achaia, and, uh, and then now it's been preserved for us so that we also have it. Um, verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 2. Now he gives kind of a standard greeting that he gives in almost every one of his letters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've probably heard this before, but if you haven't, grace and peace is a mixture of two cultural greetings. So the, the Greeks would say to one another, charis, that's the Greek word, charis, grace to you, unmerited favor to you. Even though most of them were polytheists, it was still the idea that the gods give you favor, right? And to the Jews, the word peace, shalom, that was their greeting, peace to you. And so Paul is using a common greeting. Obviously, he's not a polytheist, meaning he doesn't, he's not ascribing or believing in multiple gods, but he's still using their cultural greeting of the day, saying grace to you and peace to you. So that, that's what's happening there. It's an inclusion of Gentiles, Greeks, and Jews. So he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, you could probably talk a lot about that, but we won't. For time's sake, uh, I encourage you to, to uh, meditate, meditate in your own time on uh, God the Father. In the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly, excuse me, in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that, uh, that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So he's writing to the Corinthians. He's uh, beginning with comfort. Now, if you remember that big introduction we talked about, I understand that this is a great set of verses to talk about how God wants to comfort us, and, and we'll talk about that. But remember, Paul is writing back to them based on either the original issues in uh, the, if you recall, 1 Corinthians, we're told that essentially somebody named Chloe, a woman named Chloe, that she wrote to Paul. And so she writes to Paul in 1 Corinthians, and that's what it is, that there's a lot of problems in our church. Can you help us? So Paul then addresses some of those problems, and some of it's in 2 Corinthians, and there's probably a third letter before it. Uh, but all that to say is he addresses those issues. So as he's talking about comfort now, it could be that when, because Timothy stays in Corinth for a while, then he comes to Paul. He's not just talking about Corinth in general. He's specifically saying that they received, that is, Paul and Timothy and the other guys that were with him, that God has, has uh, continually comforted them. But first he starts with the origin. 
And he starts with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So part of being comforted and comforting others, it starts with this idea. Not just like, hey, you should be hardcore about worship. That's fine and that's good. But the idea is that, and really in comfort in general, I'm not talking about comfort from like minor inconveniences. Because there's kind of two kinds of comfort, right? You can get a, a minor inconvenience where you go to your favorite, like, you know, latte shack or whatever, and you ask for whatever special drink you like, and then you get, like, a bad version of it. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, now I'm on my way to work, and it can be a dis- Let's just be real. How mad have we gotten over something like that? Like this devastating event in our life because our morning drink is bad before we get to work. I mean, we've probably gotten upset by that. So that's a minor inconvenience. And your comfort might be that you do U-turn and you say, hey, could I have the drink that I want? Or you just drink it, whatever it is that you do. I don't know. Hopefully you're not rude to the person that gave it to you. But that's it's a minor thing. But then there are things in our lives where we can't get over them. Or that's the way we'd phrase it. We feel like we can't move on from it. We feel like there's, there's no way to be comforted by this. And so what we've been talking about, even in the kind of the gospel passages we've lacked, looked at excuse me, in the last couple of weeks, is the, the, the person who dictates the most comfort in your life is you. And this is a really important idea. You get to decide how comforted you are. And I make that point because he starts the whole thing by saying, praise God, right? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we're looking for comfort, we can look for it, as it were, in two different ways. There may be more than that. But we can look for comfort from kind of the ticked-off angle, Right? In other words, we, we're experiencing something that we dislike. We don't feel like we can get over it. Maybe we tried. Uh, maybe we sought counsel from those incredibly wise people at our job that tell us to rage. You know, all the different ways that we do that, that we kind of seek, seek, as it were, comfort. We're just upset, and we continue to vent the fact that we're upset. We continue to dwell on the fact that we're upset. Meanwhile, the whole time we're saying, I wish I were comforted. Have you done that before? Or have you been a part of that when somebody else is doing that? And every time they come in, they come to your house and they just vent. And you're like, no, 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 that's cool. Like, I get it. I heard what you're saying, but God. Yeah, but yeah, 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 God, 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 yeah, yeah, comfort, Jesus, yeah, uh-huh. But don't you know what my boss said? You're like, yeah, I do, because we've talked about it like five times. But, but God. And so he starts this whole idea about, pray, or about comfort with praise, And so what I want to pass on here is that praise is communicating what? It's saying that God has done something right. Is that correct? That God has saved me. I'm praising him for his grace. I praise him for his mercy. That you're saying, I'm about to say something good about God. That's actually the word glory, right? Is the word doxa, where we get our word doxology. And it's to have a good opinion. So whenever it talks about in the scriptures, it says that we give God glory. It literally is the idea that God's reputation for being good grows. <laughs> That's kind of what, what, what biblical glory is. And there's radiance and so forth. But all that to say is when we're in a situation where we feel like we can't move on or we're, just, we're still angry, we're still anxious, we don't know how to deal with it, if we're going to be comforted by God, we have to begin with acknowledging that he's done good things. Right, Because there's not going to be comfort from a position where, where it always comes from a place in our heart of grievance and anger. And I'm just waiting for God to comfort me. He better. He owes me. Do you know what he cost me? Do you know how I could have had this or could have had that? But God came along and hosed me out of it. 
Right? We talk like that. We think that way. If we're, if we're good enough Christians, we know not to say that out loud at church or something. But the reality is we can think those ways. And then when we try to say, I want comfort from God, it's a lie. Well, I wouldn't say it's a half-truth. Because we want the comfort, but we're not willing. We're kind of at this place over here like we're holding our hearts for ransom. We'll say, well, you can have my heart if you give me what I want. You can have my, I'll be comforted by you. I'll let you, and it's just, it's, it's so egotistical. It's ludicrous. I'll be comforted by you, but you better do what I want. You better apologize for how you let me down, for how you let this happen in my life. Then I'll be comforted. We kind of treat it that way, don't we? And then we never find comfort. And then we get bitter. And then we tell everybody around us how we didn't get comfort and we're bitter and, and, and we just we don't want to be around it anymore. And then we leave. And typically when we, when we kind of separate from other Christians, we have to have a reason. So we make some other accusation. We can't just tell people, well, here's the thing. Something bad happened and I haven't dealt with it well. And I'm still upset with God and I'm not letting it in my life. And so I'm going to separate from you guys because I don't want to deal with the fact that your life convicts me of my anger. We don't say that. Instead, what we say is, that guy's a jerk. That gal's a jerk. Yeah, I was going to that church for 15 years, and then someone cut in front of me to get coffee. So I was like, screw that noise. <laughs> right? That's what we do. Let's just be honest about who we are. We're not gonna, we don't be honest about it. So the bottom line is, Paul says, first and foremost, he says this. Praise God. Praise God. He's the father of comfort. He's the origin point or I should say of compassion, right? That's what the verse says. He is the father of compassion. He has given life to compassion. Compassion, if you look it up, it was funny. Uh, I always try to look up some of these words in different dictionaries. So you have a Bible dictionary version, and then you have a Webster, and all these different dictionaries. And it's very circular because I looked in, I don't know, three or four different uh, dictionaries, and it would be like, compassion is pity. I'm like, hmm, okay. And I'd look at another one and said, and I looked, so I looked up pity, and it was like, pity is compassion. I'm like, oh, thanks. Essentially, this is what compassion is. It is observing someone else's difficulty or pain and feeling sorrow for them. That's what compassion is. So Paul is saying we ought to praise God for who he is, what he's done, but we praise him because he is the origin point of anybody and every way that, that, that it, for feeling sorry for someone or feeling observing pain and realizing it's difficult. But that's, it, it comes from him. And why that's important is for, for many of us, we can think of God as kind of this, he's kind of out there. Like I'm living my life, and at one point Jesus kind of, you know, 2,000 years before me, popped into the world, said I love you, paid for my sin, and then kind of ejected. And there's this spirit called the Holy Spirit that is pretty wild in some places and pretty chill in other places, and I don't really know how to go along with that, but now I'm just living my life. He's just far away from me. And the reality is that's not true because God is the father of observing pain and feeling for it. He is the origin of compassion. We use the word, it's funny, because we use the word pitiful. If we say, that's pitiful, usually we're insulting something, right? What we're saying is, we're just using it wrong, but what we're saying is like, that's, that's lame, it's weak. But really, if you were to say, like, that's pitiful, what you're saying is that thing or that person deserves sorrow over what they're going through. So when it says that the Lord pities us, as a father pities a child, it's not derogatory, it's not condescending, 
It's the idea that God looks at you when you're in struggle and he feels your pain. You mean, think about it. Jesus, we have emotions. Jesus created emotion. But Jesus' emotion, and when he, when he shared his emotions, I think they were emotions that weren't corrupted by you know, weird blood sugar or hormones, you know, cycles or anything like that. Or, or whatever, you know, hunger. It just wasn't, he had perfect emotions. And so when he wept for people, he perfectly expressed emotion. So the creator of emotion, the father of emotion, is also the father of compassion. And he sees what you're going through. But here's the question, and I don't have all the answers. I'm not trying to say, if you've never heard from God, it's because you're ignoring him. I'm not saying that. Sometimes God is just quiet, and you're like, well, this is not what I wanted. I don't want you to be quiet right now. I want you to speak to me. And I can't answer that question, because only God knows. But what I do know is that for my own life, usually if I'm not being comforted, it's because I'm still pitching a fit in my heart. Even on the outside, if I'm smiling and say, oh, God bless you, everything's fine. It's because I'm being upset in my heart. And I'm not letting God speak to my heart because I'm still not willing to praise him because I'm still questioning his goodness. This event occurred in my life, therefore you're not good. And God's got a different plan. And that's actually what, where Paul's going to go with this. Because God is the origin of compassion and because he's the origin of comfort, and the, the, the word comfort there is actually used a ton of time it's, uh, in the scriptures, a tons of times. Parakaleo, it's, it's used also as like to beg someone. It's used the idea of to encourage someone. So it's translated a lot of different ways. In this, in this tense or in, in this place, in all these verses, it's like 14 times it's, the, it's translated as comfort. But it, what it means to, to, to come alongside someone, that's what it means. It's like you're walking and someone comes up next to you. So he is the God of walking next to you, is kind of, would be kind of a literal idea of what's happening. So again, we can choose to reject that and continue in a dissatisfied and a discontent state. Or we can choose to acknowledge that contrary to our feelings or emotions and then begin to walk from that point forward open to receive what God has for us. Does that make sense? Do you guys kind of see the difference? One is letting God in. You're not earning anything. It's not like God's like, oh, you've been good enough. Now I'll comfort you. It's not earning something. It's being available for something. Making sure like it's really the plea of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, make straight the paths of the Lord, that's actually a, uh, a reference to a Hebrew idea of iniquity, avon, which means to be crooked. Every time you see the word iniquity in the Old Testament, and that our, our, uh, uh, our iniquities will be upon us, the idea is that the weight of crookedness, the, the weight of doing, thing wrong, doing things wrong, oppresses people. And so Jesus, it says, he, he lifted or took away our iniquity. So when John says, make straight the paths of the Lord, what he's saying is, Make it easy for God to get to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, make it a straight path. Make it a, a, a swift walk for God to get from, you know, to you to help you with your issue. And so repentance is that straightening. Does that make sense? So we'll move on from there. He says there that, uh, verse 4, he, com he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So this, he, he, there's, a, there's a fruit that comes from this. Now, Paul is not saying the only reason God ever comforts you, he doesn't really give a rip about you. He just comforts you so that you can be part of the ministry. That's not the idea. This is just a, a portion of it. This is a portion of the idea. 
that the comfort that we receive, we are then able to take that same comfort and give that to others. So how does comfort manifest in our lives, right? Because it can be kind of a nebulous idea. Well, you guys are here, so preaching to the choir, we can make decisions in our lives, right? You can decide, you can, maybe this Sunday morning or maybe some Sunday morning, you've had to make a decision where you were like, I'm pretty chapped with God, or I'm chapped with this person at church, or I'm just generally discontent, or I'm feeling anxious, or I'm feeling depressed, or I'm feeling angry about whatever it might be. And you thought to yourself, if you're a normal human being, it would be way better to sit and watch something on TV or go for a hike or do something than to go to church. And I'm not saying that those things are not possible. I'm just saying that on average, it may not be the best decision to ignore meeting with God's people to you know, watch The Office or something like that. So you made a decision. If you came to church and God spoke to you through somebody here at the church or spoke to you through a teaching or you were blessed by the worship, you didn't earn that, right? You just were available to experience it. You made it easy for God to get to you. If you said, well, forget that, I'm going to watch, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, binge watch my favorite show, then you receive some comfort, probably. It's more distraction. It's more of, I don't have to deal with X because I'm filling my mind with all this stuff. And I get to chuckle and I get to eat popcorn and maybe sneak some ice cream in in the morning, but nobody will know. You know, whatever, whatever it might be, right? But you, you, you received, or I received my just reward, my temporal comfort that eventually ended with no eternal value. So it's just making decisions and choices that present my life and align me to receive what God has for me. In this case, he says that the comfort we receive... So if I came to, if, if, if my comfort is binge-watching Netflix and I meet someone else that's down, that's down and out, all I can really say to them is, well, you know what, have you watched this before? It's really funny. That's all I have. Have you, have you tried this before? Have you tried, you know, putting two kinds of cheeses on your nachos? It really cheered me up. Right? We, that's, that's what we have. But when we are encouraged by the Lord whether here, it's here at church, singing a song in our car, meeting with somebody that we know knows the Lord, just positioning ourselves to be open, then all of a sudden, sometimes we receive uh, an encouragement. We might be reading on our own, and the Lord gives you something, and you're reading like, oh, I've never seen that. That's incredible. And it cheers your heart, right? Because there's a truth that you discover about who God is, or you're reminded about it, or whatever it is. Now you have something else. Now instead of like, have you tried eating this to cheer your spirits? Have you tried watching this to cheer your spirits? And really, honestly, all those are, they generate a physiological reaction. If you eat food that you like, or if you watch something that you like, your brain releases dopamine. That's why you feel better. You're literally just self-medicating. Instead of using opiates, you're using, or I'm using, something else. So you can either have a temporary dopamine release or you have some sort of solid truth. You meet someone else and go, you know what? One time I was down and out and the Lord gave me this solid truth. All of a sudden you have something for them. So Paul is saying that the comfort that God gives to us, that he wants to give to us, we are able in turn oftentimes as led by the Spirit to take that same eternal comfort. Think about this, that you possess Eternal comfort, if you've allowed God to comfort you, and you can hand that out that will eternally change someone else's, someone else's life for the better. That's radical power. 
right? And, and, and that's, that's, if you will, the, the cost, that's the precipice, the reality that we live on in every day. That we're available to receive eternal encouraging truth when we allow eternal encouraging truth into our lives and then to dole that out to other people. That is a heck of a lot better than a lot of the other things we dole out to people. And so Paul's saying, look, this comfort that we receive in our suffering, this same comfort we're able to give to others. So it's, it's a fruitful comfort. He says there in, in uh, uh, verse 6, he says, if we are distressed. Now, who's the we? In this case, the he, or the, I should say the we, is Paul and his people. But it applies to us also. But he says, if we are distressed, because he's writing to the, to the Corinthians. So he says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. In other words, he's beginning his case to the Corinthians uh, uh, versus kind of these people that have crept in after he started the church. And he's saying, if we go through distress, me, Timothy, Apollo, sorry, all the different people, Epaphras, all the different people that have visited Corinth that we know of. He says, if we are distressed, then we're distressed for you. So he's telling them, we suffer this distress for you, which is what? It's I love you. If you're willing to suffer for someone or with someone, that is true love, isn't it? That, that, that's one of the ultimate expressions of care. I mean, how many Facebook memes are out there of what a true friend is, right? And act, let's be honest, as a digression, they're kind of weird. Like a true friend is someone you can be rude to and be a bee and this and that. And you're like, okay, I guess. Is that really what you want to boast in is how mean you can be to the people around you and they're still around? Seems weird to me, but cool. So but that's what true friendship is, right? When you invest someone, when, when you invest in someone and it costs you. So Paul's just saying, we invested, we're distressed, we love you. It cost us. He's not trying to boast about it. He's making a comparison through people that are, or I should say, against people who are just trying to draw the Corinthians away to bad doctrine and to themselves. Almost, almost every time you see bad, doc, bad doctrine, and it's, it's doctrine that says you have to read this book or pray this prayer or do whatever it is, it's funny how you always have to like need the person that's telling you that. Just as a side note, completely nothing to do with this. If you ever meet someone that says that you need them to somehow walk with God, they're wrong. They're wrong. You need Jesus. Do other people help us? Sure they do. Some, some of them do. But none of us is needed for someone else to walk with the Lord. So don't ever, don't ever fall for that. It's garbage. Anyway, he's going to go on. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and your salvation. He says the reason that we're going through this stress, this difficulty, is because we want to see you be comforted and we want to see you saved. Not just necessarily saved like believe in Jesus, so that's true, but a continuous salvation, a sanctification. We want to see you grow in your knowledge and in your relationship with Jesus is what he's saying there. He's going to go from there and he says, if we are comforted, so if we get comfort from God because of the stress that we're going through, the difficulty we're having in trying to minister to you, it is for your comfort. So he says, even the comfort that we received because of the distress that you gave us, you still get that comfort too. That's how powerful, as it were, the, the comfort and the spirit of the Lord is. He goes on to say there, um, uh, it, what happens is it produces, it says, which produces... In you, patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. So now he also says that you can receive the same comfort that we have from being distressed by you guys. Now, why would the Corinthians have the same issue that Paul is having? 
Well, it's like any church split, right? If you have a section of people in a church that decide that they don't want to be part of or believe or whatever it is, a certain ideology that church has, and they leave, there's kind of a few different ways that that can go down, right? They can go down with a big stink, and then all of a sudden, there's like this propaganda war of who's right and who's wrong. Well, the Corinthians got a letter from Paul, multiple letters, to repent, to repent from being crazy things like being drunk at a potluck, uh, suing each other, uh, weird sexual relationships that go on in the church. So there was part of the church that were engaging those things, and if you engage in it, it kind of says that you approve of it, right? That you're kind of into it if you're part of it. And so when, they, when one part of the church decides, you know what, Paul, you're right. That's sin, and we're not doing that anymore. What happens? There's a split. And in the beginning of the split, and it happens on a micro level. In other words, it can happen maybe in your life. Maybe you had a friend group, and then you get saved. Or maybe you're in a friend group, and you just after you're saved, and you decide, I'm going to walk with the Lord. You don't necessarily assault the other, hopefully you don't, assault the other people with the gospel. You're probably just sharing with the gospel. Because you look, what did you do this weekend? Oh, man, I went to church, and uh, you know, I had a good time, sung some worship songs, and we had a meal afterwards. It was, it was chill. I really enjoyed it. And people are like, oh, okay, church. Because they're not going to have anything to say to that. It's a crazy thing that happens when you begin to walk with the Lord because you have all the best intentions in your heart for the people around you, but they start to fall away from you because they have nothing in common with you. Even no matter what, you might want it so bad to maintain that bestie that you've always had, but when it comes down to, push, you know, uh, when it comes down to pushing and shoving, you, there's just nothing there anymore. And just your very existence convicts them. It's weird how we are. We've probably experienced that too. When we're uh, in rebellion about something or we're upset about something and somebody else is like, you know, if we're, <laughs> if we're just like, oh, I don't want to go to church. Or I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that with the Lord. And somebody's like, I'm super excited to go to church. Is our first instinct to be like, hey, I want to hang out with you. Not usually. Usually our first instinct is like, well, good for you. Move along then. I'll be here with Netflix, my new friend. Right? That's what we, that's what we do. So it's not surprising that in the Corinthian church, there are unintended splits happening because people are just deciding, yeah, we're going to follow this letter we got from Paul. We're going to follow Jesus. And there's other people that are like, you know what? If I can't get drunk at the potluck, I'm not coming. You're like, okay, whatever, I guess. I wish you would come and just not be drunk. And there's this weird split in the friendship, isn't there? So Paul says, look, the things that we're going through, you're going to go through them. And you're going to be able to get the same comfort that we get. It's going to be okay. He goes on from there and he says, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. Now, again, this is that same context. Paul is, is relating stories to them and accounts to them so they can know about his care and the care of the, his brethren to them. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. And I just want to point that out as a side note. He's calling them brothers and sisters. These people are raging against him. They're making false accusations. If, when we, <laughs> it's one of the reasons I love this letter. In, in uh, about chapter 6, he says, You guys always tell me that I sound really strong in my letters, but I'm really weak in person. That was their accusation about Paul. Like, you're sure a tough guy when you write letters, but you're kind of a putz when you come here. Kind of interesting, huh? He's also going to go on to say, Hey, at the end of the day, the more I love you, the, more, the less you love me. So Paul's going through this. It's a pretty emotional thing for him. He's going to talk about when I handed off my last letter to be brought to you. He says, I weeped inside. He said, I cried because I knew it would hurt you. I knew it would be difficult. 
And then the end of chapter one, he's telling them, he said, you know why I didn't come visit you? Because I'm not here to lord over your faith. I'm here to be a helper of your joy. And then in chapter two, verse one, he says, he says, I didn't want another painful visit. So this is not just Paul just ripping off letters like, oh yeah, you know what, you guys, you're losers. This is a heartfelt event. Paul's tore up about these people. He cares about these people. And so he's coming, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. He's not trying to boast and be like, you know how awesome I am in an apostle? Let me just tell you. What he's trying to say is, I went through all these things. I was distressed for you. The guys were distressed for you. Uh, Apollos uh, was distressed for you. you know, all these people, these other ladies. He goes, but you're my brothers and sisters. You're my, and I said, hey, you people. Hey, you guys. Hey, you stupid church. My brothers and sisters. When we're having disagreements with people, do we look at them and say, we're brothers and sisters? Do we look at our hardcore Calvinist friends and say, hey, they're brothers and sisters? Do we look at our hardcore Armenian friends and say, hey, they're brothers and sisters? Do we look at our cessationist friends and say, there's no gifts of the Spirit? Do we say, hey, they're brothers and sisters? Do we look at our hyper-Pentecostal friends and say, hey, they're brothers and sisters? We're not going to agree with everyone, but they're brothers and sisters. And even, even if we are kind of like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know about that. They're brothers and sisters, right? If they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation through his blood and righteousness through his sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead, they're brothers and sisters. And so, you know, Paul's addressing this. It's a very mature way to look at it and say, hey, because this, this, this whole thing right here is maturity. This is Christian maturity to say, hey, you're my brothers and sisters. And I want to help you out. He says, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received a sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul gives a testimony. It's a testimony to them of not only what they endured, but it's a testimony of how God came through for them. And he, and he, he, says, he says Asia. So it's not Asia like when you think of Asia or when I think of Asia, the, or we were looking at a modern map, and it's that whole giant continent. Asia for them is like Turkey, <laughs> essentially. So when he's talking about Asia, he's talking about that little Greece and Turkey, that little area right there at the north of the, the uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea. And so he, what he says there, he says, I want you to know what happened in Asia. Some people think that this is Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, which could be it. Uh, remember, there's a riot there in Ephesus and like, I can't remember how many it seats. It's something like 25 or 36,000 people can sit in the, uh, the uh, uh, theater, the open theater that's there in amphitheater that's there in Ephesus. You can still see it today. You can Google it if you want and see pictures. It's still there, which is kind of cool. You can actually look at the amphitheater that this riot was at. And so for two hours, because the gospel has takes such a hold there in Ephesus that silversmiths start to lose their money, and they're upset by that. And so they basically stir up a riot. We're Cliff Notes versioning this, but they stir up a riot. And so what happens is all these dudes come rushing in, and it says it was full. It says that the, the, the amphitheater was full. So it's right around 30,000 dudes. And they're all screaming for two hours, great is the goddess Diana. And it's all because of something you did. And they want to literally rip you limb from limb. Because that's where they were at. And they're trying to jostle Paul. They're trying to grab him. And he has to be kind of hauled out and kind of get away from that. So that could be it. It could be something else. But what he says is, his commentary is this. He says, we were under great pressure. Now, he borrows a word here from Greek culture. Because you could translate pressure other ways. And the word that he borrows, it's, it's, 
it's essentially a Greek torture. And so, like, the United States, for a long time, used waterboarding, which I'm not endorsing. I'm not making any political statement about that, okay? I'm just saying it, it, it got done. And it was to simulate people drowning so that they would want to give information, right? That's why they did it. So the, what the Greeks would do is they would, if, if they're, because they're, remember, the Greeks kind of took over the world for a while, uh, what they would do when they got prisoners or they got political prisoners is they would take them and put, lay them flat on a bench or on, on the ground, wherever it was, and they would take like a, a board, a pretty thick board, and would lay it up to their chin. And they would take a boulder, essentially, a, small, a big rock that they could carry, and they would set it onto the board. And so every single time a person exhaled to try to breathe, they, couldn't, they wouldn't be able to push the boulder back up. So they would do these like light little breaths to try to stay conscious. And obviously that creates panic, like what waterboarding does, and it's a psychological torture. And then they would pull the, the rock back off the person, let them catch their breath, and try to get information from them. And if they wouldn't give them the information, back, the rock went back on there, right? So it creates this manic frenzy uh, of fear and terror in the person is what it did. So that's the word Paul uses. He's not just saying, like, I had this big test at school and I was kind of scared. He's not saying, like, well, I was up for a promotion and I just didn't know if I'd get a raise. What he's saying is we were in a situation that was torturous. The pressure was insurmountable. And that's what he says, right? He says that we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. So Paul, right, this amazing apostle, he says, we got brought into something that we could not endure. We could not endure it. And but he gives us a reason why. He says, so that we despaired of life itself, indeed, but we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. So he says, God allowed this event in our lives, and it felt like I couldn't breathe. And then he says, I felt, we felt, because there are other people there with him. He says, we felt like we had been sentenced to death. In other words, he's saying, we in that moment believed we were going to die. And evidently, he wasn't cool with that. Because he says, I couldn't bear it. So I think it's important to understand that he, it's not just some minor, meager thing like a cold latte. He's saying, I really thought I was going to die and that I could not bear that. I could not bear what was happening to me and to the people around me so much more that I was despairing. Despair is like a feeling of just complete loss. It's no hope, no expectation of good. So he says we came to a place where we didn't expect anything good to come out of it and we thought we were going to die. He says, and the reason that God let that happen, and here's the thing, causation versus allowance, it's a bizarre thing, and I'm not sure that any of us can ever really have a firm hand on it. I can't anyway. In other words, where does God's allowance, how does that mingle with causation? Did God cause something or did God allow something? And by, very, by allowance is that causation, kind of some philosophical thoughts. I don't know how that works out. But what I do know is we live in an incredibly broken world. And one of the strategies that God uses a lot is he allows things to happen. And he's the one that decides what he allows to happen, what he does not allow to happen. He's the one that decides that. And so in our, seek, in our, in our, in our oh, how would we say it? In our desire for happiness, in our desire for comfort, 
We can get hung up on that and begin to question who he is and if he's good. Or we can chalk it up and look at it and say, I, I don't like it, but I don't understand it. And someday that'll be something I hope to find out. So don't get stuck over causation and allowance. It's just unknowable. But realize that God is good and everything he's ever done is good. And so in this case, Paul says, God allowed this. He did this. And he did it so that we would come to a place where we finally didn't rely on ourselves. He did it when, so we would come to a place. These are like the big boys, right? I mean, these are like the people that get sainthood and you know, <laughs> that we want to idolize and make statues of. And their commentary is God had to break us. God had to bring us to a place where we could not do something ourselves to get away from the suffering. We had to let God work out what he was going to do. And he says, and through that, through letting him work and letting him do that, they came to a place where they no longer relied on themselves. You know how we rely on ourselves? We look at our bank accounts and we say, everything will be okay. I have enough. We look at our relationships and we say, everything will be okay because I have this horizontal relationship with another human. We say, you know, everything will be okay because I feel happy today. Everything will be okay because my car starts. Everything will be okay because... And we try to find some sort of good in temporality in, in this temporal world. And then we try to say, oh, that's why I can... But Paul's saying, no, we had to be brought to a place where we said, you know, you know how I can be comforted and be good? Because God is good. And I'm involved with what he's doing. And this is why this is kind of walking with Jesus 2.0, right? Or, or 201. Like, you know, have classes. You go to college and like 101's like... Here's like the remedial math, right? And you have to go like learn addition again. And you're like, thanks, guys. This is really helpful to me. And then eventually like graduate to, you know, math 201. Well, this is like walking with Jesus 201. Walking with Jesus 101 is like, hey, I'm saved and I'm stoked and I'm going to church and we'll see what happens, which is a great place to be. But that's not where God wants to leave us. He wants to bring us to maturity. See, maturity is not lack of suffering. It's not always having good. Maturity is realizing that God has something grand that he's doing in us as individuals and in this world. And for as much as we want to, and for as much as we don't want to, we get to choose if we're going to be involved with that. And so Paul is saying they were being involved with what God had for them. And because he wanted those people in that time, Paul and his, his companions, to fully rely on him, he brought them into a situation which they felt like they couldn't breathe and they were going to die. And then all of a sudden, God came through for them. But they were looking for it and they were searching for it. They weren't sticking to, they, you know, I, I think the implication here is he didn't sit down with T Timothy and Jason and all the other guys that were there, if, if this is the Ephesians uh, incident, and go, you know what, this sucks. You know, all we're trying to do is spread the gospel and God's not even softening their hearts. Pfft, why do we even come here? God is so lame. Can you believe this? I mean, you know how much I've served him? He made me blind once. I can't even see well now. This is what Paul went through. Do you, do you realize I've had this thorn in my side for three years, and I keep asking God to take it away, and he keeps saying no? Screw that guy then. Right? That's our attitude. And then we go, why am I not comforted? Right? So we have to come to a place where we acknowledge that, you know what? 
I can't breathe here. And I need, I need God to do something supernatural. I need to find real comfort. When I, when I can't find it in Netflix or my bank account or this other relationship that I could have or this relationship I, did, I wish I didn't have, you know, all the different ways that we think, if I just had this or didn't have that, then I'd be comforted. Those are lies. We're comforted in Christ. And that's, that's alone the reality. So it just comes down to us. Will we receive that or not? Will we let God do what God wants to do? He goes on from there and he says, verse 10, He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. He says he, he learned something, right? He says God did, did deliver us, and he will deliver us. How did Paul die? You guys know? He was beheaded by Nero. Right? Emperor Nero beheaded him. So, eventually, God didn't deliver him, did he? And he just died. But that's okay. Because he ran his course. If you read 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that we have, that Paul wrote, it's full of but nothing but praise. He even says, he says, my time's near. Peter says the same thing. I'm pretty sure my time is near. And he's in the essence, I'm paraphrasing, is I wouldn't trade this for the world. And then he's beheaded by Nero. He's actually in house arrest for, I can't remember how long, 13, 14 months. He's in house arrest by Nero. And then he's pulled out of his house and he's beheaded by Nero. And his response is nothing but joy. Because God is working something out. He's getting his way. Great things are coming from it. So we have all this opportunity for comfort, right? God is available to supernaturally comfort us through one another, through personal revelation. And what I mean by that is just, if you're, whatever, standing at the beach, standing at your house, praying, seeking the Lord, sometimes he just encourages us. Bring something to mind from his word or just his Holy Spirit encourages us. Hopefully we have encouragement because we come to church and we come to seek him. We have encouragement from dialoguing with one another, encouragement from the opportunity to have certain musics or, you know, and worship in our cars, all these things. We have all these opportunities to seek comfort. But the, the question is, do we? Do we seek comfort or do we insist on, on not being comforted? And the scripture says there in, in Romans chapter 8, all of Romans chapter 8 is basically that we have victory in Christ and that God is working all the time for our sake. That's what Romans 8 is. And, and, he, and he sums it up in general by saying this, that he works all things together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Why is there a, 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 an added portion there? Why, is, why, does he say, why doesn't he say God works all things together for good for everyone? Because he can't. Because we don't let him. But he says he works all things together for good for those that are, that are loving him. It's present active. That love him. That are those that are seeking and saying, I love you, even though this hurts. He says, I can take anything that happens and I can make it for good. You know, years ago, there was a couple that went here and they've long since moved down to uh, Eugene, I think it is. But, and, and she told this story publicly, so I'm not... 
revealing anything, uh, Hirsch and Meg Lang. And Meg Lang, back in the storm of 07, remember that? We all lost power for like a week or whatever. She had a wicked hemorrhagic stroke. And they had to, they couldn't fly her because of the weather, and so they had to ground pound her to a hospital. And she had to relearn, uh, she, was, she, she was talking about how she had to go to like this fake kitchen in the hospital, and like, like they had a fake bedroom and stuff like that, and had to, uh, down in uh, the Portland area, had to relearn how to fold a towel, had to relearn how to use the refrigerator, had to relearn some speech aspects, and just a, just a ton of stuff. And, and she, she had some deficits to the very day that she felt kind of self-conscious about. But I was talking to her about it one time, and I remember she told me, she said, you know what, I wouldn't trade that stroke for the world. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's, that's crazy town. And she, and she goes, no. She goes, she goes, the comfort that I received from God trying to learn how to fold a towel was something that I would never, it, it was so supernatural and so incredible that there's no health that I would trade that for. It was just wild to me, right? Because our health, our health, your health. And she was like, it's just, no. I would have that stroke five more times if I could if I continue to receive that kind of comfort. I'm not saying that all suffering is good or that events are good that make us suffer. That would be kind of a weird thing to say, I think. But what we can definitely say is that if we let God work, he'll work it for good. And he'll bring us, the true victory is not absence of suffering. It's trust and faith and joy in the suffering, right? And so that's when we become unbreakable, as it were, when we can go through it knowing that God is good, praising him. I'm not saying we don't falter. I don't say we don't, we don't have to lean on one another, but going in the direction of saying, now God is good. And he says, the comfort that you receive, it's going to be incredible, and it's going to be usable in what God has for you in your life. So we get a choice. God is kind. So that's all we got for the first part of first or Second Corinthians. Hopefully we'll uh, get to some more stuff next week. But the Lord loves you. He's got great things for you. Um, we have a meal afterwards. You're more than welcome to join us for that. If you'd like some prayer or you're seeking comfort, we'd love to pray with you, talk to you. And uh, if not, God bless you. And I hope that you find his presence this week. Father, thank you for your great kindness to us and mercy. Lord, we pray as we go out of this place that there be a fresh filling of your spirit in our individual lives. We pray, Lord, that the comfort with which we've been comforted, we'd be willing to give to others. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be yours and then that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we, we want to commit ourselves to you for as much as we can. We want to welcome you into our life for as much as we can. We want to ask you to do great things in our individual lives and in our church and our community. Pray for the people to be saved and find you for themselves. So thanks for being so patient with us. We really appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.